Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the SimKit Podcast. I am joined by an ultra, ultra special guest today. It's a gentleman who really probably needs little or no introduction outside of his own name. I am joined by the great Rob Orman. Rob, thanks for talking with us today. All right, I'll say first, I guess I'll say you're welcome, but I'm going to say thank you for that ultra, ultra, I got I got Double an ultra. ultra squared intro. That was uh man, and I know some of the people have been on your podcast. So that what a what a tremendous it's compliment. A high bar. I, I want you to be nervous that you're gonna underperform. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is after all the Sim Kid podcast. Wait a second. This is yeah. oh, this is uh this is how it works when you go into Sim. At, like in the debrief is when it's all nurturing and yes, and this is the, okay. the stress. Yep. <laughs> um but Rob. <laughs> You, sir, you, you, I mean, you're a busy guy. You have been behind some of the most influential medical education podcasts for emergency medicine. You are the voice of the amazing stimulus podcast, and you're a life coach for clinicians. You seem to be a individual who has this whole quote unquote work life balance figured out. So my first question for you actually comes in the form of a quote. There's no such thing as work life balance. It is all life. The balance has to be within you. Namaste. Now, I added the namaste, but what are your thoughts about <laughs> that? Where does that quote come from? I love that. Uh, so I actually use Headspace. I don't have any stock yeah. in them, but I, I do use them as a, one of my meditation apps that remind me to do it. And and uh, it came from them. That. That's where I have sort yeah. of found that. And, and it, it tickled my fancy. And I'm curious what you think about it. Yeah, it's so true. I, 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 I love that. It just... I mean, it just rings in the affirmative in my brain when you when you said that. And I think there's a lot of ways to break down the different things that you do in life. You know, you like put them in silos, delineate this from that. But really, I mean, you've just got so much time in your life. What are you going to do with it? Mm -hmm. And you know, I think that yeah, there there is this thing, and I I I fully embrace the kind of the ethos of that quote. But I, I think it can be helpful to deconstruct your life in a different quadrants or categories where you look at where you might be unbalanced. So looking at the whole thing in composite, yeah, here's all the things that are in my life. But when you think, all right, where am I maybe putting too much attention or too little attention? What's, what's oversubscribed or undersubscribed? So for example, with new clients, I have them do as part of a self-survey, a dashboard indicating where they are over attending or under attending and the and the, and you know you can do this in any way but this happens to be work health play and love what is happening in work health play and love and when you look at all of those things when you look at them globally what's What's not getting enough attention? What's getting too much attention? And for physicians, it's often, well, work is getting a lot. Work. <laughs> or it's actually, it's, it's interesting. Work is usually uh, just all the way to the red line. Or sometimes if there's too much and someone is just really burnt out, it can be at zero. There's just kind of like this feeling of collapse. Mm -hmm. um, and... There, there's nothing magical or precious about those things. I actually got them from a book called Designing Your Life, and I thought it really made sense dividing things up this way. But really, all of those things are just life. And one of the things or one of the traps that you can fall into with work is that work becomes the ultimate protected thing in your life, right? And we, we know that, that, hey, I've got this, I've got this shift and it's going to take, well, even uh, some kind of natural disaster, especially I'm going to the ship, nothing is going to get in the way. <laughs> Where you, going? You, and I, you and I both know we have friends, let's just say, who have worked uh, with an IV in their arm, getting <laughs> rehydrated when they've got gastroenteritis or whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just like, and so the boundary around that is amazing, right? And it's great, but... The other things in life don't necessarily get that protection. Mm -hmm. And uh, that can be a problem. Yeah. You know, it's um, 
when you when you look at what is really important in life or i mean well this has been studied there's the the grant study which is the longest running research on happiness looked at what makes a good life and they studied people throughout the course of their lives and now it's multi-generational and what they found the consistent factor is relationships quality relationships more than social class more than income more than iq more than any of that stuff and so we just get in the habit of putting a boundary around this one thing. Whereas, Hey, there's all this other stuff in life where we need to be attentive to, you know, to, to really have a fulfilling experience with life. All right. You know, I'm sort of, sort of going on a, a polemic here. So I'm going to pause and I want to hear your thoughts on that. No, I, I like that um, sort of breakdown. And I think it, you you end up with the sort of question of like, do you dichotomize life into work and life? That's kind of what yeah, the quote was yeah. about, right? And you, from your sort of example of work, health, play, love, well, then it's, it's it breaks it down further. There's work and you're taking life and you're breaking it down a little bit more into health, play, and love. And eventually you just break it down into so many segments that it's indistinguishable. But there are areas of our lives, it seems like, that need focus and work just draws our attention like you said you you die to make sure that you get to your shift and and do the the work that you do as an emergency physician but are we putting the same energy into health play and love i i i love that word dichotomizing i just want to i just want to acknowledge um you know I, I don't think this is the elephant in the room because we're talking about it but let's just say an elephant in the room is that most of us are oversubscribed to work in some way or another. If we're if we're going to dichotomize, which is fine, you know, I think it's a, it's great to say work life. It's it's all life. Okay, here here is my life. But what are the areas that I need to attend to? Where most of us are oversubscribed to work in one way or another, either in the time we put into it or the stress that is attached to it. Sure, doesn't necessarily have to be like, oh my gosh. Uh, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of clinicians right now are working more shifts than they want. Yep. They just, it's, as and we don't need to go into how, how that happened because it's happening. Another podcast. But yeah. it doesn't even have, it doesn't have to be the case. It's just even those shifts with boarding, with under resource, with collegiality decay, with increased friction, it's just so hard to get things done. There's so much stress attached to it. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine this is the case for you. I come across very few clinicians who are bored and say they're not working with, enough. With their work, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, and, and uh, I'm trying to think. No, I, I can't think of anyone in the past couple of years who has said, I need to put more energy and focus into work. Now, learning, yes. Right. But work, no. Like personal development and professional development and you know we were we were talking before this you know Simkit what you're doing which is basically postgraduate graduate postgraduate education <laughs> for people who are out of training and then these these halo procedures these high acuity low opportunity procedures you sort of lose your sharpness with it okay there's something where people need to put more wait a second I think I just did an ad within the show you did <laughs> <for your own. laughs> okay. but that's where people really feel compelled to put more energy into but not the work itself. Right. And right. the so it, performance of the work as opposed to. Yes. Right. So when you're talking about dichotomizing life, I think, I think it can be helpful. It's a helpful construct. Um, when it becomes maladaptive is when we see anything that is dichotomized as truly being separate from the whole. Like I am, I exist on a, different plane when i am working no you're still the same person you're still rob or jay yeah i agree yeah um as an aside on that i'm curious your perspective you know we're talking about that non non dichotomizing or or putting your your work on a completely separate plane and i want to come back a little bit to you know we were saying that with work it may not be the number of hours that is being taken from you at a higher percentage than you know, you're at home more than you are at work but the amount of energy or life force that's going into that there's so much of a draw or probably the opposite a suck of your person because our shifts are so demanding of us so one area that i've sort of 
tried to focus on is, is sort of leaving work at work to not bring my work experience into the home life and certainly not difficult cases or patients, traumas, you know, food insecurity, all of that stuff. So what is your, your thought process on that? I, you know, I, we don't want to dichotomize. We don't want to exist on a different plane, but we can't bring emergency department life into our home. It's not good for our spouses or our children. That's so common to have that experience of how do you transition? Yeah. Really? Well, how do you transition? Let's let's talk about the the end transition. So transitioning from a shift to home. Because there's also transitioning into the shift. But I think, and you know, you're especially a night shift, you're like the day before you're thinking about the night yeah, shift yeah, and then it kind of goes. For a while. Yeah, but that but that afterwards, um, there's so many different aspects to this, but First, let's talk about transitioning to home. So basically from your work brain to your home brain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your, your work brain is so focused on all of that stuff that you're talking about. And it's really, it's, it's going so fast in one way. And in another way, it's also depleted. You know, you're depleted of your serotonin and your dopamine and just like, just tired. Mm -hmm. And it's like you need to do this reset before you're able to engage with your family. I mean, and it just it just takes time and it just take intention. And so, what I started doing, and I, uh, you know, work with clients on as well, is how do you intentionally transition from work brain to home brain? How do you do it? And there's there's a couple ways. There's sort of a, there's like a long-term aspect of this. And then there's the short, immediate aspect. And what, and one exercise, and there's, there's myriad ways to go about this, but one exercise I have docs do is right before they get home is basically process the day. Okay. Cause that, that's, that's what needs to happen is we don't process it. Yeah. It just happens and then boom, boom out the door we're, in we're the into car, home. Gone. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have a commute, if you have a commute home, you go from work to home and it could be on a bike, it could be in your car. And before you go in the door, and if you have young kids, I recommend you park like a block or two away from home <laughs> so people can't see you. Yeah. Because I, I found, you know, some people get in the the, the, driveway, <laughs> the garage yeah. and six and the kids, kids come running out. out. Yeah. <laughs> dogs are going to scratch the door yeah 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 it just kind of you know it just takes some time and space in that commute to you know listen to music or if you listen to podcasts or nothing and then before you get home take five minutes and just sit in that car take some breaths take some deep breaths and See if you can turn down the amplitude of that of what is really a sympathetically activated or charged state. You know, you're up, you're upregulated. Yeah. Just some deep, slow breaths with longer exhales than inhales. Deep in through your nose, out through pursed lips. In through your nose, out through pursed lips. There's a lot of different ways to do the breathing exercises to to downregulate. Just start turning things down, and then. When you feel that things are a little bit calmer, a little bit less static in the brain, then walk through the day. Just walk through that whole day and think about what did I see? What did I feel? It's almost like a personal debrief. Mm -hmm. And what went well? What were some great moments mm -hmm. in that day? Mm -hmm. And you look to the patient and sometimes it's just a thank you or yeah. a you know, incredible procedure sure. or joke from a spouse know. or something, something even silly. Yes, yeah. exactly. So you're processing that and you're just kind of going through it. And, and then what's one thing I could have done better, right? What's my learning point? Mm -hmm. How am I going to grow from this? And it could be, ah, I, I really didn't know as much about the PCARN fever rule for 21 to 28 days and uh, so okay i'm gonna i'm gonna read up on that or i'm gonna take some action sure and what you're doing here is you're taking action 
you are processing. It's a little bit of reflective processing afterwards. I mean, right. it's a, you, you could journal this or you could think this. I find it's easier just to sit in your car and think this through so that you can process it. And then I have a, a friend, friend of mine who I, I do a lot of, a lot of work with is a psychotherapist. We've kind of developed this process together. What he does is he, he imagines that all of that stuff kind of gets condensed into a balloon okay. or, and then he visualizes himself snip, Popping cutting the cord. Oh, letting cut, it nope. fly away. Snip, okay. cutting the cord and letting it float away. And then boom, goes into the house. Nice. And yeah, so there's a lot of different ways to to do that. And so that's a, that's just one example of an acute transition yeah. from work to home. Work and there's, home. there's other ones that, you know, you get home and then you're thinking about these cases, right? There's uh, one client who called this afterburn, the afterburn. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, residue would be the more common, uh, the common cause. And I, I just want to tell you this in- incredible thing that uh, that really she worked out. Or I guess we wor- worked out together. But I have to give her the credit for this. It was quite incredible. So there were things that would just stick with her, you know, just kind of cases that you ruminate on. Let's call it rumination. Yeah. And that impacts the quality of your experience with your family and the rest of your life and your relationships. So went back and identified what are those situations? All right, go in your shift and identify those situations where what is it that you're thinking about and mm-hmm. made a list. So it's made, made a list and it's, it's usually um, a situation where you don't have enough information and you have to make a decision and then you go home and you ruminate about it, right? You know, like an equivocal chest pain or, you know, this patient had this kind of weird symptom, not quite sure. And so out of this came the letter to future self. Okay. So we identified these pivotal moments where later on she would ruminate or one would ruminate. Mm-hmm. And so took a pause in those moments and mentally would think to herself, dear future self, at this moment, I am making the best decision possible based on the information I have. And, you know, the first time it's kind of like kind of clunky, but after a hundred times of doing that, that builds that mental muscle. Yeah. Uh, so just two examples of how to not necessarily separate, but really I would say how to integrate that work experience into, into you. And I say integrate like you would integrate sugar into water. You know, you pour it in there mm-hmm. and it dissolves. Becomes it makes it a little sweeter in the end. So that's yeah. integrated versus disintegration, which would be like pouring oil on water. And it never fully gets processed or becomes part of you yeah i like that i think um there's two parts of that i mean the the letter to future self i think is a great way to sort of avoid your yourself criticism your monday morning monday morning quarterbacking of yourself you go back in a chart the next day someone finds the answer to to the diagnosis and you're like oh man i'm i'm not good at this i didn't ask the right questions but you're making the right decision or the not right the best possible decision you can with the information you have that's a fantastic way to keep yourself from beating oneself up because our job is hard and we don't always have the information we need to make the best decision uh, but we make the best for the time with the space and information that's that's great i love the letters to future self and i really like the idea in the idea of the cutting of the balloon this sort of active almost de-escalation you know this this active um turning of oneself off because I have always found that particularly, you know, we have a shift that, that ends at two in the morning and I've got, I have kids, I get home two thirty, and I'll find it's four in the morning after watching a show that I'm like, <laughs> okay, I should probably go to bed now. And I feel like my brain is ready to do it. And I'm yeah. like, what a dummy. Why did it take me an hour and a half to get myself to a state where I can do that? I think it's because I've used commonalities of you know shows and and simple distracting techniques 
to slowly and um, passively de-escalate myself. But I think if you actively do that, man, you're going to find that you, you don't have to do this dragging on process that, that brings you to four in the morning after a 2 a.m. shift. That's, that's super helpful for me. I love that you brought up the TV thing. So for over a decade, well, I don't know. I can't remember when Netflix actually. I actually started this back in a time, but I was recording shows on VHS tapes. <laughs> so, so this this goes way back. A long I'd come time home. Ago. Yeah, baby, a long time ago. This goes back uh, many years, and just like you, I would watch regularly, especially on those late shifts when there was no accountability for what I was doing. Right. Four hours of TV from <laughs> 2 a.m. to 6. I mean, 6 a.m., man. I gave myself a freaking night shift. And it was just, it's the equivalent of, oh, I'm going to drink a couple glasses of scotch. Well, we know that, oh, you don't drink alcohol before you go to sleep. Well, we probably shouldn't watch four hours of TV <laughs> before you go to sleep. Because we just want to, you know, that brain is just so freaking on. I mean, emergency medicine is so hard it's so cognitively demanding i can remember i didn't i didn't appreciate this so much until i was uh, like a third year resident it just kind of took it for granted that oh beep bop beep bop beep bop you know kind of going around yeah i had uh, not even a uh, like a severe headache i had an ocular migraine during a shift i get i get migraines all the times whatever i mean they're generally bug me too much but i could only see out of one eye that's that was it i could th i could think fine <laughs> it was just you know it was just this one thing happened that just just skewed me a little bit and the whole thing just fell apart it was like the the amount of, I, and i was like whoa i can't believe we talk about this how much you're processing you know you've got like a thousand data points per hour and all yeah. this stuff it really is. It really is so much. And, you know, you start off that first patient in the shift and you've got, you know, you've got one ball you're throwing up, throwing up. And by the end of it, it's a hundred balls you're juggling. And that volume is turned up really high. I mean, it's, I guess it's not, you watched the Benny Hill show. This might be. Uh, I know of it. I did not watch it. It's, it was these... on VHS, I'm assuming. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. I'm dating myself. They used to have these montages where they would speed things up uh, uh, at like two, two X or three X time and have yeah. them running around. That's what you're like. Yeah. And and your your brain can't just say, boom, click. And so that's why, you know, we would watch all those hours of TV just for the time. Yep. Yeah. To stop Turn the tornado. It. Yeah. Slow it down. Oh, I like that. Yeah, to, to how do you slow down a tornado? You let the tornado go, or in this case, you can come up with a routine or yep. with a habit Excellent. that's probably in the long run healthier for you. Because I mean, you and I both know after years and years and years of that, those decreased sleep windows, especially you know when you've got kids, you've got a family, those decreased sleep windows add up to physical and physiologic stress. Yeah. And I mean, if, if people aren't, aren't drinking the Kool-Aid on this, I think this is great. I think it's uh, the way to do it as opposed to, like you said, two to four hours of TV after a shift. But even if you're just that type A or you're that motivated to be the highest performing person you are, it's more efficient, right? If, if you yeah. need no other reason, you know, then, then I, need, I can't spend that length of time to de-escalate and, and slow my brain down. If you spend the five minutes actively doing it versus the two to four hours of TV passively, then you're being efficient. But uh, yeah, I did want to bring it back a little bit. So uh, we we're sort of talking about ways of at least de-escalating oneself or bringing oneself from the work to the home environment and even a little vice versa. But coming back to this, these, you know, these silos, if you have them or these dichotomous areas, or if you have the four elements that you mentioned, I just kind of want to give you an analogy for life that I've used and see how that plays into what we've talked about with the important parts of one's life. Okay. So I've used this for a long time. It's the, the life as a barrel analogy. You have to, you have a barrel. Your life is actually the barrel and it's yours to fill. 
and you can fill it with it, fill it with whatever you want, whatever you so choose. You start with though with your big, really high priority items. These are the things that have to go in first because they're so important and so large that you need to make sure they fit. In my mind, these are the boulders. It could be your spouse, your family, your physical or mental health. It could be a passion that you can't live without. Say you're you're an avid painter or sailor, or you're you know big into philanthropy. Whatever it is for you, you know, career certainly for for many would be one of those boulders. They are large and they have to be put in first to make sure that they fit. Once you've filled your barrel with your boulders, it's packed to the top. Then you think, okay, is it filled? Filled? Is my barrel full? Is my barrel of life full? But of, of course it's not, right? Then you have rocks that you get to fit in between these boulders. And once you pack the rocks, you can choose to add sand, add the sand filling in the gaps. Now, some people kind of just want that to be empty space. No sand, just empty space to enjoy themselves. But many people like myself just want life to be as full and active as comfortably possible. That's how I feel well and, and function best. So we pour in the sand. And then once the barrel is brimming with boulders and rocks and sand, you imagine you can't possibly put anything else into the barrel. Well, then you crack two beers and you pour them in there. Just as a reminder, <laughs> there's always room for a couple of beers. <laughs> what are your thoughts? All right. Okay. Oh, my God. I have so many thoughts. I've never heard the cracking beers in addition to the rocks and pebbles and sand metaphor. I mean, yeah, you've. I, I'm going to say you've you've you hit the nail on the head with the the beer cracking. Um, you. <laughs> you know, I um I have a I just I, I just want to talk personally because yeah. this is this I don't think you could get more personal than this because this is how you spend your life. Yeah, what you do with your time. I I try to leave as much space between the boulders and rocks as possible, and mm -hmm. not pour in sand just to have empty space yeah that's and fair. it's whether it's reflective space or just not so much tightness in the schedule that there's not room to breathe and i just I, and over time have come to value that more yeah the 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 non-sand space i agree with and, you i think and maybe that comes from, from parenthood because you need spontaneity, <laughs> right? You need yeah. to have room for spontaneity. Yeah. And if your yeah. sand is packed around other rocks and, and boulders, then you may not have space for that. But yeah. Yeah, I think for me, the, the analogy really essentially deteriorates or it really only has value through the boulders, right? You're not labeling what yeah. your rocks are. You're not labeling, okay, this, this uh, academic project is my sand. But once you identify your boulders, that's the most important. Nothing else can interrupt that, right? Do you personally, do you have a variation or a different way of visualizing the, the same sort of thing? Yeah, I um, I would say I do and more intentionally over recent years. I didn't used to. Okay. It would be, I, I would just, I would take on whatever shiny object came my way. <laughs> sure. <Yeah. laughs> and... Um, you know, I, I was, I will say that, you know, as I'm thinking about boulders and sand, I fall prey to prioritizing sand on a regular basis. I'm with you there. Yep. <laughs> I mean, this is me. It's like, ah, oh, yes, the boulders always take priority. I only have three or four boulders at a time. Nah, man, I think sand is so attractive. And I do, I do periodically take stock of what I'm doing personally and professionally and how many big ticket items, big rocks I'm working on. And if there's too many, what can be put on the shelf for a while or put in a holding pattern? Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I love that you hit on a key aspect of what these rocks or boulders can be. And most of us think that rocks or boulders are, you know, creative projects, are work. But family and health are also part of this. And for example, so I work with a, a doc on overwhelm. Mm -hmm. One of the things we do is we list out everything that's on their plate, big, small, or, or whatever. And in the framework we're discussing, we're going to list out the boulders, the pebbles, the sand. And you see pretty quickly that it's just a mishmash <laughs> with no prioritization. 
So we break it down. We find out what, what are the boulders and how many of these are at play? What are non-negotiable? What can be put to rest for a while and attended to later? And what simply, and this is, and this is so hard yet so freeing, what just need to be jettisoned? Yeah. Sure. So, yeah. yeah, what what is this thing giving you? What is this thing costing you? And it's funny, you know, when you work with high-level performers, which physicians and especially emergency physicians are, sometimes there will be this burgeoning ambition to create something incredible. And, you know, it's like, where I want to put my energy. And most of the time, it ends up being some creative project, some reformation or some, you know, I don't know, like what to be opposite of a tributary, some uh, offshoot of their work. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, and this is really interesting as, as we go through this, it's like, oh yeah, you know, creative project, creative project. And I'd say about half the time, the boulder or project of that burgeoning ambition ends up being a relationship of, oh, yeah, actually, it turns out that this is where I really need to be attentive and have this be a key, like the big boulder in the middle of my barrel. Yeah. Oh, I have no idea what you're talking about, by the way, as a guy who's trying, <laughs> trying to uh, create this project that you're you're joining to talk talk with me on. But um, that that makes a ton of sense, and I think that that mishmash that you described for one of your um, physicians is very true for most of us. Like. I you know, I've, I have this in my mind, and I I have the idea of what my boulders are, but it it on a day to day basis it can wax and wane, and you can falsely label work or uh, a project that means little to you. You know, I love that idea of what do you what do you give to it versus what does it take from you. You know, very uh, imbalanced projects like that that you're labeling inappropriately as boulders. But I think um, one of the greatest challenges in that realm for me is how active versus passive these elements to keep with the analogy pull our attention right so the sand seems to be so active and the boulders in a lot of ways are are passive and to explain that further kind of for as an example you know we've talked a bit about that i'm a father and so for many with a family parenthood is a major boulder it for me it may well be my purpose in life but and I make no claim to being particularly great at it. I'm, I'm learning as I go. But uh, you know, the reality is my children, barring any kind of tragedy that we're not going to dive into today, they're, they're always going to be there. I can be an active, engaged father at, with them at almost any point in time. But the book chapter that has those deadlines, the hospital committee that meets biweekly, those things actively draw your attention. So, Rob, have you come to find this imbalance between sort of importance and urgency in life's work? And, and if so, how do you, got, how do you handle it or how do you recommend people do so? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> love, That's a deep question. I love this question. Yeah. You know, I think that there's a couple aspects to this. Um, on a global perspective, there are times when, let's, let, let's go back to the gauges for a minute, work, love, health, and play. Yeah. And it's like, like, okay, I'd like for these to be balanced. It's not, you know, not everything's going to be right down the middle all the time, sometimes some of those things are going to need to be really turned up, mm -hmm. you know, like you're, you're start starting this business, you're doing this thing. It's like, okay, you're really putting a lot of time and energy into it. Yes. That, that, uh, that startup time or that like sweat equity you're putting won't be always. So you just know, okay, well, for this period of time, I'm going to be you know, work, working on this. And then I know I'm going to turn that down. So I'd say that they're always in flux and that just with some, something when you're going through that, I was thinking, yeah, it's a, there's always going to be a, a, a calibration and a recalibration. And it's not necessarily like, whoop, works too much right now. Got to turn it down for sure. It's just, all right, how's this fitting in the rest of my life? And uh, what's this going to look like for the long term? Sure. But from a personal standpoint, which I, I think what you asked, I work at home. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I retired from clinical medicine, boy, uh, it's coming up on four years ago. And so because I work at home, it means I live at work. <laughs> that, that's true. I, I never thought of that other side of that. Yeah. 
So, so which means that it's easy to be on 24 hours a day and it's easy to get sucked into work and give it massive importance. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, you and I both do a lot of creative work and what is the death of creative work? Interruption. It, that's it. It's yeah. interruption. That's what, you know, when we talk about deep work, what's the whole thing about deep work? It's uninterrupted time. I used to rankle. Let's say, let's, let's use the word rankle okay. at interruption right. when I was doing creative work. And then I just kind of looking at this global thing as we're doing, I was like, all right, what's actually, what, what is my life? What's important? Mm-hmm. So I made a hard and fast rule that unless I was involved in something I truly could not get out of, whenever my kids would ask for my attention, that was immediately priority one. Love it. Now, this happened when my kids were teenagers, so they were more, a little more <laughs> self yeah, yeah. And you know, right over to my right, it's the the office I work in has glass doors, so I so anyone can come here and get my attention. And that has gone on to apply to big and small things. You know, the 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 daily machinations of life, and then planning what happens a big picture of life. For example, I don't travel a lot for speaking. Mm. It's not that there's not opportunity. It's just that that's not where I want to be spending my time. I, you know, I want to be home with my family and that's yeah. a trade-off. Yeah. But so, but for example, over the next couple months, I will be, I think I'll be traveling like four times in two months to, you know, to conferences talk because there's something I want to talk about. There's something I feel needs to be spoken to people live yeah. and not on a zoom talk. It's just, I, I, that interaction needs to happen with groups in person. So, all right. So that's important. And there's, there's a trade-off again, like that's not something that I will regularly do, but I know I'm going to just turn that dial up for a short period of time. And then I'll turn it back down. What is it giving to you versus what is it taking from you that that's pretty balanced in that circumstance? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. And wait, nice callback. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I listen. Um, (laughs) so, um, a friend of mine, help me develop another decision-making heuristic, which is that anything new you take on, is it going to be worth the time that you are taking away from other things? And what, what he said specifically said, it was this one project. He said, okay, this is an amazing project that I'm sure you'll kill it. Before you jump in, will it be worth the time you're not spending with your family to do this project? Yeah. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because we chase the sand or we chase the thing or we chase the shiny thing. If the answer is yes, then you do it. If the answer is no, then don't. And the answer to that was no. I couldn't believe it. It was something I'd been thinking about for so long, but it's like, you know, it's not worth it. It's not in the long run. Yeah. That's a, a fantastic litmus test. And I mean, it, it's it's a harsh one in its own reality because very few are going to, um, you're going to answer yes to you, right? Because are we ever really willing to openly state this is worth my ambition to take away time from my family. But I think, you know, taking that with a, with a grain of sand or uh, taking that with a grain of salt about what this is actually going to cost you is, is very valuable. All right, but if I can, I want to bring you to a little bit more brass tacks. We've been talking almost a little, a little metacognitive here today. Uh, and I want to talk to you about burnout. Okay. So we we talked a little bit, you know, briefly, superficial level in the beginning, but we know in emergency medicine we're working harder in worse conditions than we really probably have ever done before. Yeah. Whether it's borders, psychiatric holds, for me, sometimes administrative red tape, the invasion of the corporate medical groups, there's almost too many reasons to mention why a clinician can feel burnt out. So how do you, Rob, how do you help? A clinician out of that hole because it really can feel like a hole when you're going in to do work that you've worked so hard to get proficient at spent years and so much money to get the ability to execute this job and now you're starting to resent it that's a hole that someone's in so how do you help them regain themselves uh and and really their love for their work i love the description of the hole or the metaphor of the hole it's so true i you know, I, I had three burnouts in my career 
And it felt like I was just drowning, you know, just below the water, taken on the water. And it's, uh, it's hard and it's, it's doable. And it doesn't feel doable when you're feeling it. And I'll say for, you know, you, you mentioned a whole bunch of, of, of things. A lot of them were systems issues. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, really in the long term, that's where things got to be fixed, business systems. But that's a hardship to turn around. There's also the professional realm. There's the personal realm. All three of those things play into burnout. Sure. And, you know, you, what you said is there's it's common with a lot of clinicians, but nobody comes to burnout or frustration with the same recipe. And really the simple question is, I mean, it's simple and complex. The simple question is, is, what is it about your current situation that needs to change? And is that within your control? Is there an aspect of that that is in your control? Yeah. And what's one step you can take to improve that? And th that is a deep dive into each person. And much of what I do each day is help individual docs navigate this. We pick we pick one stressor. Now you, I mean, you mentioned a litany <laughs> of things. Pick one stressor because you have to start at one point. You know, it's like if you if you try to juggle a hundred balls at once, it's gonna be hard. Yeah. Uh just you just start with one. Toss the one ball up and down. Focus there. Okay. Yeah, right. There's so much. So what are commonalities for docs? What are things that are stressful? There's EMR, lack of recovery and recharging. There's moral injury where you repeatedly see and are part of a system where people are treated worse than they deserve, where you're working contrary to your values, collegiality decay, friction. There's lack of autonomy, overwork, overwhelm. There's all of the, all of that, the, the systemic stuff that you were talking about. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a whole nother cargo train <laughs> coming down the <laughs> miles track. Miles long, miles long. Yeah. And you know, what's, surprising yet not surprisingly common with with docs that it contributes to work dissatisfaction we can I, which let's just call it that for the moment is under appreciation mm. under appreciation by patients by leadership and sometimes peers yeah and right there's this brief window during peak covid when the world was giving emergency medicine this great big hug and including consultants yep. <laughs> and, and, and from, in most places, hospital leaders <laughs> from their homes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Thank you for being there. Uh, that's done. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, is what can you do about this stuff? Uh, I mean, it's, if there is nothing that you can do about any of it, well, that leads to hopelessness and that leads to despair. So where can you find agency in your situation. Mm -hmm. And I, I mentioned the, the three domains before that are important when you're talking about managing or mitigating or prophylaxing burnout. That's the ideal to prophylax, yeah. personal, professional systems. And first, focus on your relationships. What can you do there to make sure that those are a continuing source of joy, that those are continually supported, sleep, health, fitness, all of those things for self-care, for personal care. Yeah. And well, let me let me go back to the personal realm. We're talking about agency, and that's what it all comes down to: is where do you have control? Where do you have agency? So, in the personal realm, I mean, it, it's there in gangbusters. If you want to, if you want to increase throughput through your ED, you could do it, right? On the personal, realm. you could do it, but it would. It's a it's a heavy lift. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of people and you, there's only so much you can control there by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. There's only so much that Jay can do mm -hmm. in this. If you want to start scheduling monthly date nights, you've got, I mean, you've got extraordinary agency there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like you're like you're from Krypton and you're now you're here with this little son. You got this superpower. Yeah. So, so in the personal realm, that's where you have the most agency. That's where, your foundation for everything is. On the professional realm, there's less, but it's still there. Yeah. All right. So I had a client who who wanted to leave medicine. And you know, I, I know all these stories of asked permission if I could could share them. Sure. So it's not a like, common theme, obviously. Yeah, right. And their main thing was you know, nobody appreciates anyone. 
it just sucks. This sucks. Nobody's grateful. It's just, this is, this is, why would I even work in this place? And so what they actually came to coaching for was career change. So I want you to help me find another career. <laughs> what else can I and do? Wow. What else can I do? And I actually, I don't, I, I specifically don't do that kind of work. That's uh, that's not, I so if, if a doc wants to stay in medicine and make that joyous, great. I'm there. Yeah. If you want to find career change, I will refer you to somebody else because sure. that's not what I want to do. So I said, well, before I send you to someone else, let's, let's dissect this a little bit. Yeah. Let's see what we can do. <laughs> but this is what what a great challenge here that the challenge was nobody appreciates anyone. Well, it would seem like you don't have any agency there because you can't make people appreciate. You cannot control the thoughts or actions of others. Right. So what can you do? All you can do is be attentive to when it happens be present for when it happens and act in a way that's worthy mm-hmm. of appreciation. Mm-hmm. So I learned this from my mentor or one of my mentors years ago, and it is, it, it was transformative for me. And it's, it's like the, it's like finding the golden ticket in a chocolate bar. Okay. So I it piqued my interest. I gave, I gave her this experiment and you, you may have heard that I've talked about this in other, in other forums before, but, but, they took this or uh, or she took this to such an extreme. I said, next shift, when you go in, I want you to start the day with this mantra. I'm open to accepting gratitude from my patients and staff. That's it. That's it. I'm open to accepting gratitude from my patients and staff. And I could see, I could see the wheels turning. I said, wait a second. Let's, let's talk about what this means. I don't want you to just say it. I want you to be like a radio telescope, like a 50-dish radio telescope in the middle of the desert. Every dish is just super sensitive, waiting for it. Like for it, th- this is it. Gratitude, to pick up the gratitude yes. you're saying. Okay. Pick it up. Just, you're ready oh, to pounce. Yep. Yeah. So let's just see. Let's just see what happens. Comes back a couple weeks later. Just whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. I can't believe all the gratitude that was happening there. There was so much because in the normal flow of our day, we just let it roll off or we dismiss it or we don't really attend to it. You know, we definitely attend to somebody yelling at us on the phone, but we don't attend to that gratitude. And so many patient interactions or staff interactions or even consultant interactions have that woven into it. So when that moment happens, I'm open to accepting it. It's like, oh, let me pause. Let me be present. You're welcome. It was a real, real joy taking care of you. That is good for the patient because their gratitude has been acknowledged mm-hmm. and it's also feeds you. And so, yeah, so that started building. And then what she started doing was when, when she would hear gratitude for someone else, she'd pull that person into the room. Uh-huh. She sucked other. Yeah. yeah, she brought their their ears up to it. They made them aware of it. Okay. Yeah. So then, and, and then it just started snowballing, and there were many, many, many steps. But eventually, this led to a culture change in that emergency department, where people expressed gratitude and people were open to gratitude, and it was uh, it, it was really incredible. It was just her finding that agency, yeah. and just it was like a it was like a catalyst. You know, yeah, she, right. She and was the catalyst and just expanded it. I love that that sort of analogy that too. And you, that story starts out so simply. And I don't know if if you got an eye roll from her initially when you suggested it, but some people might just say, "Oh, come on, you know, like uh, I'm going to oh, be my. open to accepting gratitude." Like, <laughs> oh, sure. eye roll. Eyes were <laughs> looking at her occiput, <laughs> right? So right. And then, but you 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 buy in just a little bit. She bought in a little bit, you know. Rob yeah. told me to do something to do it. And I, I noticed that that family member said thank you. Or, you know, even when you said be deserving of appreciation, like simple things. You say patient asks for a blanket. Sometimes I'll, I got to blow that off. I got to go check on that other person. It takes 30 seconds. You know, you go get the one blanket, you, you give it to the patient and they appreciate that little thing. And and that catalyst, like you said, it it spreads. You know, the, the negativity that can exist spreads like wildfire as well and it probably has less of a grade or grain against it but 
positivity can do that as well. So I, I love that story. So when you're talking about negativity spreading, I was um, I was talking with my my friend, the psychotherapist, yesterday about this, and we we're talking about support groups. I mean, it was a very random conversation, and he said, "Yeah, you know, sometimes you know, you know, there's forums where ED docs can vent and and the like, and I, which is sort of this online support group, and." quote unquote, he said, yeah, you know, support groups can be great so that you feel that you're not alone and you have this sense of community. One of the challenges is that it tends to get brought down to the lowest common denominator and that negativity, uh, I mean, this is kind of outside the the scope of this interview a little bit, but that negativity can become equally or even more infectious than the positivity, right? I mean, our our brains are just naturally wired to, to latch onto that. Yep. Yeah, and I think there's there's an element of almost like pessimism, maybe, or you know, certainly we're we're always accused, and I think it's true, our our dry sense of humor, which we use to survive the circumstances in which we live, has the potential to become more than that, right? And uh, become pejorative towards patients, towards staff, and and negativity is is kind of right under the skin in us in some ways because it's adaptive, right, to allow us to exist in the environment we do. But when we become you know, fuel for the fire and a host in which the uh, disease can spread. That's when it becomes a problem. I, I want to touch on something you just said. And you said, you know, when you're like speaking ill about patients, et yeah. cetera, which is so common, you know, you kind of get it's like, oh, this freaking guy, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. One of the hallmarks of burnout is depersonalization. Sure. And we see this. Uh, we see this behavior as just kind of you know part of our coping. Yeah, we've got the yes, the gallows humor. That's well, you know that's this that's this part and parcel of the job. Right. But when you start really insulting patients, and it's it's kind of kind of hard not to when you're overwhelmed by you know like the seventeenth meth induced psychosis of the day. Right. Right. <laughs> like, oh. yeah. And it's easy you just like piggyback on it. You know, you like the nurse will put something silly in the in the triage like patients here for four months of belly pain. You're like, oh my God, what are you know four yes. what are you doing? And you just buy right. it and you jump on top. Yeah. Yeah. So that there's a there's a hyper acute burnout inventory. Mm. There's a you know there's a there's a multi question Maslach's uh uh, multi-question burnout inventory that has been distilled down to two questions. I mean, amazingly, it said, what's, isn't that like, it's not even like an emergency, may, maybe it was an emergency doc that did that because that's like such an yeah. EM thing to do. What are the two questions? And, you know, one is what you'd expect is that, you know, I feel burned out with my job. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other is I feel more callous towards people since I started since I started this job, which is depersonalization or cynicism. Yeah. And I think it is wise to be attentive to that when you do that. Not that, you know, not that you need to self-flagellate or, or this like, <laughs> oh, I did I'm doing this. I'm a bad person. No. We do. I I have done that tens of thousands of times. Yeah. And patients. I and guaranteed. Right. I was also burnt out many times. <laughs> right. And I'm not saying that if you do that, you're burnt out, but I'm saying that be aware of when that is happening mm-hmm. and just take a little self-inventory on what's going on with you. How are you feeling? What's going on with work? Uh, and is could that be a sign of something else? Yeah. Do I need do I do I need to pay attention to shifting how I approach work, how I recharge? I mean Really, what what am I doing? What what's my what's my shift distribution and structure? What do I need to pay attention to so that I can recover and come here fresh and compassionate, which is what we all want to be when we're going to work. Right. No, that's fair. I, I like that idea, and it's it's hard to it's hard to not right. There's there's a part of it in our in our culture. It's part of almost survivalism, but aborting that when it's becoming like we talked about in the beginning you know, is maladaptive when, when you get down that road and it's really becoming the prominent feature or means of communicating or even thinking about people you're supposed to be caring for 
So then it's time to pump the brakes and, and change directions. Oh, actually, I want to make a little course correction on something you just said. Okay. So the aborting it. So that you can, yeah, you can abort the behavior, mm. but you don't have to abort or like focus on aborting what's going on inside. You can, you definitely can. Yeah. But at first, just attend to it, you know, slow things down and lean in to what's going on. Don't have to, you don't have to shove it away. We're, I mean, we're so good at that, at yeah. just kind of pack, packing it away in this endless storage locker. <laughs> we can just pack away things into it. It's not, it's not endless. So, um, yeah, I, I, and, and I think, I think that we're saying the same thing, but I just want, you know, listeners to a not, not self-flagellate because we have strong enough inner critics as it is not yeah. self-flagellate because you're doing this or thinking this it is totally natural for this to happen. Mm -hmm. Just be, just be aware of it and sit with it for a moment. That's fair. Excellent. All right. Well, that was a great sort of, um, behind the curtain on how you think of people who are experiencing burnout and how you, you help get them through that. I, I love the idea of sort of starting. And I don't know if you use the term in, in your coaching, the circle of influence, but I imagine that that comes into play. Like you, you're, you use the term agency. Where do you have agency? Where can you affect change? So take a catalog of the things in your work that drive you nuts, that make you not want to continue to do the work you do, and which of those live within that circle of influence? Which ones do you have the ability to manipulate? And, and in your story, simple things, appreciation, um, and, and knowing that you have to buy in. You're, you're not going through the motions in doing so, but you're, you're truly investing in like this, this individual really found those areas of appreciation and then spread it um, and was a catalyst to change in the department. Coming back a little bit, you know, we, we started this conversation with the analogy about the barrel. And I mentioned in brief that I like a full barrel. It's just kind of how I tick. It's something that I gives me satisfaction in life. And um, so, of course, I want to be efficient and low stress, which are, you know, sometimes at odds with each other, but not definitely, um, but like most highly uh, productive people. So I bought David Allen's Getting Things Done and, and really adapted that or adopted it into my life in a way that works for me. Uh, so, Rob, do you recommend people who are looking to get organized use that, or do you have a means to help them sort of organize and de-stress their lives? Well, let's just talk about getting things done. <laughs> sure. For a minute. I personally find that methodology so overwhelming. Uh, you know, I, I I have I have my own system which is evolving from that. It's been evolving for a while. You know, I actually I don't know that there is a particular system or approach or pop psychology or organizational book that I have found a truly transformational, transformative yeah change across a wide swath of people. Mm, okay. You know, changing your thinking and approach to life or examining it, not even differently, but simply examining it, probably higher yield. Okay. Interesting. One, one book that I, I've recommended to many clients and friends, for that matter, is 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And you know, there's, there's nothing in that book that you won't have seen before, but it is the kind of book that you keep coming back to. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, it, it just puts things in such great perspective. Uh, and as far as a simple tool to get things done without jumping into the full getting things done uh, methodology, I love Todoist. And I don't know, I don't know if you, I mean, for me, it, it allows me to have this inbox. So in getting things done, right, that's the, the key is to have this, the intake of your ideas. Right. To capture, capture ideas. So I use Todoist to capture my ideas and then set them as tasks. And for me, it's a, I, I mean, I have, I have other things in, in my system, but that's a, that's what I think is the highest yield is, all right, I've got, I've got this idea. When do I need to, to actualize it? Yep. And you know that you know kind of the do, defer, delete, etc. Et all that. I think that's that's that GTD. Is that getting yeah, generally. Done? Yep. Yeah. yeah if you and do so it in two minutes, you do it. If not, then it's your action, or you can send it to somebody else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I was having a conversation with someone who yesterday, who's a who's a getting things done expert, and they said, "Oh, I need you to do this." 
And it would, it would have taken me 30 seconds in that conversation. And so I pick up my, my, my to-do list and I, said, and I put that in my inbox and I said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm putting in my to-do list. I said, do it right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, anyway, so for, for most people, uh, th- like a couple of high yield things, I'd say more people than not have massively over, look, o- overcrowded inboxes, uh, yeah. email inboxes. You know, thirty thousand emails. God, my wife can't. And I can't look at it. So, declaring email bankruptcy incredibly powerful. Okay. <laughs> you just go back. You go back a, a couple months and save those emails and everything before that. Just make a folder. Just put it. Them, put it in an yeah, archive. Put them away. Yep. Yeah. Put them away. Um, having defined times and methodology to interact with email rather than just you know hitting it without intent like okay as i enter this email i'm going to be making these decisions like this is my time to make decisions and not just oh let me see what's come up my email turn off the freaking email notifications on your phone like seriously there is i i i don't i have never received i I might be an outlier Mm -hmm. but i've never received an email that was so critical, it could not wait until the next cycle that I looked at my email. Sure, yeah. Um, and that the the email the email the email notification on the phone Turn just completely useless. Imagining you're going to put the same kibosh on smart devices and watches, things that are going to just remind you constantly of their existence. Yeah, you know, like the my wife has an Apple Watch, which is incredible as a you know, like a health tracker and all this stuff. But you know, she she works for Hippo and she's on Slack, and so she gets Slack notifications all the time. She gets phone calls, she gets emails, she gets tech. Like it's always notifying, and it's kind of ah. Uh. So you know, I don't want to sound like a luddite. I think it's great technology, but I think yeah. that aspect of it is not a level up. I'm personally, I, I if I wear a watch, I want to wear an analog watch. Yeah. If I if I had a digital watch, I'd probably have one of the old calculator watches. I don't know. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> like that. I I, uh, I think the point is is super important to just highlight again the idea of like designating time and not having your your mind be interrupted every five, ten, fifteen minutes. But if you take, it's going to be different, you know, different strokes for different folks because of their their role, whether it's admin or just you know clinician or or whatever they do in their line of work and home life, it will dictate how frequently that check has to happen. But man, it'd be a lot better if you say every three hours, I'm going to sit down, I'll hit my emails and I can do all of them rather than every 15 minutes, I'm going to get halfway through an email and then, sorry, honey, what were you saying? I'll get, you know, get back to that. So I love that sort of fits and spurts rather than constant drip. Um, and the idea of, yeah, <laughs> Am, am I ready to take my email notification app off my phone? I don't I don't know. I have to digest that one a little bit more. But um, to the idea of um, getting things done or to do is one of the things that's so valuable for me, and I'm just curious your thoughts on it or if you would agree, is this, um, you know, they call it the, the art of stress-free productivity, but you just need a place to put stuff, right? If your mind is swimming again and again and again over an idea, I got to mail that check to my buddy and you think about six times that day. It's just now you've, you've increased the amount of work that your brain is doing in the background energy consumption of it, where if you could put it on an app or you put it in a a index card in your pocket, it's there. You check it, you know, you take care of it when the time comes and it's out of your brain. The the to-do list is is built itself or you've built it and, and you can focus on the moment. Oh my gosh. I man, well, way to save the best for last. That's uh the mail in that check to my buddy. So I, I gotta I gotta tell you this to do a story. So you, you saw my puppy when he, yeah, he yeah. came in here at the beginning of the interview. And I was like this is this is the strangest thing. You know, I've got so much to do during the day. And as do we all. And I was kind of stressing that I hadn't been training him to walk on a leash. And so I hadn't been taking him for walks. And I, I mean, we have a big backyard. They can run and play around. But, mm-hmm. you know, we want to take him for a walk and have him be able to be at least trained and all this. But I wasn't doing it. I wasn't doing it. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, just, I, I don't know. So when I started using Todoist, I put that as 
a task. Sure. Start leash training. And then thinking, okay, what day, on what day can I do this? And I just popped it in there. Mm-hmm. And then that basically, okay, on this day, ah, all right, well, this block in this afternoon, is a, that's the 20 minutes. I'm going to do that. Take care of it, yeah. Yeah, it just totally changed it. And it was amazing how much just consternation and stress and energy <laughs> it was taking not doing it. Right? It was taking so, it was taking, it took so much more energy to not do to it. Think about <laughs> it six times an hour. Oh, I'm a bad yes. pet owner. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so true. Like I'd look at that dog and feel so guilty. And so, and 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 now we go on, we go on little walks. And our other dog is is super pissed because uh, he has to watch while I'm leash training this dog for minutes. Anyway, but that, that's a whole other story that to doist isn't going to fix. No, that's that's something else for another time. But Rob, I have loved, 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 loved picking your brain on this topic matter. I think there's been so much to unpackage here. We may have to we may have to have you come back. We may have to break this up into smaller installments, but there's so much that goodness that has come from my chat with you uh, that's going to affect the way that I interact with my staff, my family, the way I think about life as a whole. Man, that's that's a lot that you accomplished that we accomplished in this conversation. So thank you so much for joining me for this and letting me pick your brain. Oh I, well, I I received that gratitude with a full open heart, and let me. Let me send back to you that you have taught me a lot over the years as well. And uh, I think so this is a this is a real mutual appreciation and symbiotic relationship. Fantastic. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening and until next time.